I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're jumping into book five, Dawn and the Impossible Three. All right, who wants to kick off our one-sentence summaries? Shall I? Go for it. Yeah, go for it. Okay, mine is 12-year-old babysitter does all of a grown-ass woman's emotional labor for her and her children. That's true. Um, mine is, as the newest member of the BSC, Dawn earns her babysitting cred and watches her mom hook up with Mary Ann's dad. All right, mine is parentified child of divorce, cares for parentified children of divorce, and endears herself to Christy, another child of divorce. Yeah, that's a lot of divorce. Mm-hmm. Welcome to this book. Um, before we go any further, we should probably tell you guys about the members of the podcast. I'm Annie Chicala, a freelance writer, a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual and I like health food. And I'm Esme Schaller. I'm an adolescent psychologist, kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. If you want to learn more about each of us and how we know each other, you can check out our prologue episode. So now on to Dawn and the Impossible Three. This is our big introduction to our new girl, Dawn. And Emily, I know you had a lot to say about this book. So why don't you get us started? I'm so excited Dawn's finally a fully fleshed out character. I don't know if you guys could tell from my one sentence reminder intro at the top of every episode, but it's a homage to my Donness. I'm not actually a total individual who loves health food, although I am. <laughs> I was like, um. Total individual. Like imagine, uh, you know, like a 90s surfer vernacular <laughs> saying that. There's so much to talk about in this book. For me, this book is really fun in a lot of different ways because it introduces us to Dawn. And I forgot how much I identified with her. I said this in the prologue. I was like, I remember strongly identifying with her as a kid. And I was curious to see if it would hold up as a grown up. And I was sobbing and cracking up reading this book. I was like, wow, I am Dawn. Dawn is me. <laughs> how did this happen? Um, she's like... I don't know. She's got a clear head on her, but she's a kid in a lot of ways. I think she's like, as, as we mentioned in the previous episode, she's sort of like the bridge between the, the babyish members and the sophisticated members. I particularly like how she declares that she hasn't quite made up her mind on boys yet in this <laughs> book, which I thought was really good. Um, but this book also has a ton of really interesting politics. Don has moved to Stony Brook from California. And as we get a tease of in Marianne Saves the Day, um, her her and Marianne discover that Marianne's dad and Don's mom were like high school sweethearts. And then um, Marianne, Don's mom moved to California and they lost touch and then they both got married. And now, you know, one is a widow and one, or widower and one's a divorcee and they sort of reconnect. But there's all this like, you know, mystery around why they broke up in the first place. The kids find out sort of vaguely that like Don's parents didn't approve of Marianne's dad. So there's like some class stuff to unpack in this book around that. Um, We get a ton of conversation around like how rich Watson is and Mm -hmm. like some really hilarious descriptions of the things in his house. I think there's a room and we should read this at some point, but there's a room where there's like three, like, three couches is just one <laughs> bit on a laundry list of stuff in one room. <laughs> like <laughs> why does this room have three couches? Um, Dawn's also really obsessed with the house that they live in. Um, it was built mm-hmm. in ni- 1795, which she talks about all the time. And so there's all kinds of interesting, um, you know, sort of references to why that's interesting to her sort of historically. Uh, and then a little bit about, um, how small the colonists were, which is also a term that comes up a lot in this. Oh, yeah. Marianne uses says the word midget. Yeah, that's times. on my that's on my social justice watch list for sure. Yeah. Um, so one of my favorite things is about uh, in this book, which is very trivial, is how much Don how much time Don spends complaining about the weather in Connecticut. <laughs> as, a, as someone who grew up in the Central Valley and has lived in New York for the past nine years yeah nine years yeah 
she is never comfortable. It's amazing. And she has this bit recurring bit where she's like yelling at the weatherman. Like if the weather, if the temperature goes up, she's like congratulating him on his personal accolades somehow. And then when the <laughs> weather temperature goes down, he's like, you know, she's like, damn you, damn it all to hell. Um, so I thought one, one way to get into this book would be to kind of look at, look closely at, uh, a, one particular moment when she's commenting on a, a set of weather patterns and ask you guys, uh, what, what we think it signals about like her sort of awareness of climate change and like kind of what environmental education the girls might've been getting in 1986. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we could talk a little bit about sort of what Don might've been getting in California versus what the mm-hmm. girls in Connecticut would have been getting. Mm-hmm. Um, as a person who was not born yet in 1986, I don't have any anecdotal evidence about environmental education, but I remember the kind of stuff we got in California in the nineties. Yeah. We'll um, report to so you from the past. Kind of interesting report yeah. from the past. Good. <laughs> Um, okay, wait. So this passage is on page 74. Okay. It's an intro to chapter eight. Dawn says the spring was growing warmer and warmer for several days in a row. The temperature reached 80 degrees. Marianne said that this was abnormal, which I took as both good news and bad news. (laughs) The good news was that maybe we'd continue to have abnormally warm weather, which would be a kind way to ease me through my first Connecticut springtime. The bad news was that maybe next year we'd have an abnormally cool spring to make up for this year, which would be cruel to my system. are those really the good news, the correct good news, bad news is of this abnormal weather pattern in 1986? Like yeah. people knew that climate change was a thing, right? Like yeah, the but I think it's created in 1970. Yeah, but I think adults and scientists knew that climate change was a thing. I mean, it, right, I, but Anna Martin is an adult. I think that yeah, was her like, adult writing about 12 year olds. Oh, I just think that was her adult way of getting that in there without going into actually what that means like i don't think anna, yeah, I'm, anna martin would have explained like climate change in in this book just because it would have taken like too long to explain mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but she's winking at it so like yeah, the weather comes in cycles and like if it's if it's hot this year it's gonna be cold next year but I, I don't know if that's like the reigning logic of what climate change means or why it's bad in the no, 80s. I don't think she's winking at climate change at all. I think it's a California trope and she's just highlighting mm-hmm. the weak Californian that can't hack New England seasons. I, you know, in terms of like what your question of kind of what environmental education, at least we can only speak to California in our personal memories, was like in the 80s. We were talking about endangered species we're acid rain was really big. That's a term you never hear anymore. We were really into acid rain. I'm thinking of well, like that what has interesting years. links to like yeah. Cold War geopolitics as well. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I'm thinking about like what t-shirts did I have in fourth and fifth grade? So mm-hmm. I had an acid rain t-shirt, like World Wildlife Fund. We were talking a lot about recycling. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking about saving the rainforest and saving the whales still was still a so, thing. So like weather systems and weather patterns wouldn't have been part of like the, the like no. educational discourse around the environment. I don't remember that at all. Other than the, the weather piece was acid rain of like mm-hmm. chemicals getting into the water. Mm-hmm. But, and that's like save the oceans and a big focus on animals, which is still a big way that you get kids interested in, you yeah. know, like save the polar bears is like the yeah. thing about climate change. Right. So I, I don't remember think, a lot of yeah. like turn the sink off, turn the faucet off when you're brushing your teeth stuff yeah. from the nineties. <laughs> but that was also cause you grew up in a drought in California. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like save energy, save water. Um, yeah. I just don't think it was part of the childhood discourse at all. Mm-hmm. No. Do you remember anything, Annie? No, I mostly remembered like endangered species was kind of like the biggest thing I remember. Um, and like rainforest stuff, but but we never talked about climate change in terms of like the weather. Um, yeah, more than and, and there's a lot warming. Of, right was was the term first, and that right. but I feel like that wasn't until like high school and college. Right, nineties. Well, there wasn't late, any 90s. like federal regulation or requirement for environmental education until 1990. Anyway, right. so I guess like what what they would have gotten would have been completely patchwork and at the discretion of individual teachers. Yeah. Right. I mean, honestly, yeah. I was assigned to write a position paper senior year of high school on the Endangered Species Act. But, mm-hmm. like, that was, like, one of the topics in our, like, 12th grade class and other people had 
different stuff, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. that wasn't all environmental. Oh, just that in the eighties, I feel like kids in grade school, we weren't really that educated about environmental stuff in general. I don't remember a lot of it. Like, I don't even, I think like recycling was like a very, very far off concept. Like my family didn't recycle when I was in the fourth grade, just because no one did at that point. Mm -hmm. Did your family recycle in 86 as me? I got into big fights with my parents about it because mm-hmm. Girl Scouts, uh, I was a Girl Scout mm-hmm. and Girl Scouts has always been a really environmentally focused organization, um, even pre-1980s. And so I wanted to recycle, um, but my dad uh, was like, it's a, it's a ruse. You know, he was really into this idea that recycling plants like took the recycling and just threw it in the garbage to like make money or that recycling was actually bad for the environment. Like one of these tropes that like it, t- it took more money to recycle and mm-hmm. more not more money but like it, it used more resources to recycle than to make new things which I think was a pretty popular belief in the 70s and 80s so nice. um I collected cans and did things like that with my Girl Scout troop but like our mm-hmm. family didn't recycle as a matter of course until we got curbside recycling and then we did exactly right when did curbside recycling arrive because I feel like we had that in central California my whole childhood. Um, I have no idea. No idea. I don't know. Listeners, if you happen to know. <laughs> I mean, it's in very and by, by community, <laughs> right? Right, that's true. Yeah. I don't know when it started. Okay, so one of the other things that I thought was really interesting about this book is Don's discussion of the house. So there's a passage at the beginning on page eight where she's describing the new old house. It's a sort of like joke and between Don and Mallory and the Pike kids. And she says, Claire and Margot giggled. Mallory had christened our house new old and the little girls think it's funny, but Mallory's right. I do live in a new old house. It's new to mom and Jeff and me, but it was built in 1795. I love it. Even though it's dark inside and the stairway is narrow and the doorways are low because people were a lot shorter in 1795. I like to think that I live in a house that so many other people have lived in. People who saw the War of 1812 and the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation and the gay 90s, capital G, capital N, <laughs> and the first airplane in the Depression and the first rocket ship. It's exciting. Next paragraph. I bet our house has a secret passageway somewhere. Maybe it was even part of the Underground Railroad. Okay. So that's one issue, one place where she deals with the kind of history of the house. Mm-hmm. And then there's another one. Um, that I forgot to write down. So that is not very useful. Oh, page 66. So this is when we can get into some of the plot points later, but Christy and Don have a kind of tense relationship. There's some jealousy surrounding friendship with Marianne and, um, Don as a gesture, a friendship to Christy invites Christy over to her house to sort of smooth things over and they're shooting the shit, you know, talking about the house and, she tells Christy, like, we live in an old farmhouse. It was built in 1795, blah, blah, blah. And then she's describing the house and she says, when the house was first built, there was nothing but farmland for miles around it. But Stony Stony Brook kept growing and the people who owned the house kept selling off land until finally there were just one and a half acres left with the house, an outhouse, a barn, and an old smokehouse. Sort of got run down, blah, blah, blah. So I was trying to think about... (laughs) what picture we're getting of sort of Stony Brook, Connecticut's history here. And it seems a little white and a little <laughs> washed and a little benign. Yeah. <laughs> to me. I don't know if that stuck out to either of you guys, but I don't know what you mean, Emily. There's just yeah. farmland. I mean, there was That's nothing. And then there was farms. As far as the eye can see. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I was looking a little bit into like what some state level practices and laws were in Connecticut vis-a-vis the abolition of slavery and the relationship with indigenous folks. And in 1795, right, you have independence from Britain declared it only 20 years prior. Uh, And then you don't have like the Indian removal act until 1830. So like, Mm -hmm. presumably there's a lot of indigenous people in this region, not just acres of open farmland that people are sort of nicely building their own homesteads upon. Um, And Connecticut also had a really slow roll, uh, really slow rollout of the abolition of slavery. They Mm. like enacted some kind of, um, 
like future abolition act in mm-hmm. virtue the, signaling, yeah, like in the signaling. late seventeen hundreds, but it it was like uh, sort of like a phase out <laughs> approach, mm. and slavery was in the region like well into the late eighteen hundreds. It was like one of the last northern states to have like a pretty robust. Um, presence of enslaved people. So I just wanted to note <laughs> those sort of historical discrepancies yeah. there. Uh, as a, I, I mean, I think it's cool that Don's interested in history, but again, like maybe a reflection yeah. of kind of what, what education middle schoolers are getting in Connecticut in the eighties. And, and now, you know, presumably that, that hopefully that's different, but yeah. Um, well, I think, I, I don't know if maybe we should, we should mention that Emily's partner, Matt is, is from Connecticut. Maybe we can do a, a quick dramatic reading of uh, your text to him that you showed us the screenshot of this morning. Oh, yes. um, and you could be you and, and I'll be Matt. Great. <laughs> do you know anything about Connecticut settler colonial indigenous history? Specifically, were there many remaining tribes in 1795? Nope. Missed that in school. <laughs> Great. So we have reason to believe that this was not emphasized much in the Connecticut school system to, to back up your theory. Emily. At least in the 80s, as evidenced by this book, or in the 90s, as evidenced by Matt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Emily, in, the, in our last episode, you talked about um, the class war between Mr. Spear and Don's grandparents, which was really played out in this book. Um, what did you notice there? Well, why don't we say a little bit about the setup here? Do you want to give a short summary of the scene where the sort of action comes to a head? <laughs> so over Memorial Day weekend, Don's mom hosts a picnic in their backyard since her and Mr. Spear are dating. She wants to get both families together again to kind of get to know each other. So it kind of uh, it, it kind of plays out. This, it kind of plays out in this very long, drawn out scene. <laughs> I feel where there's a lot of, you know, witnessing by Christy, Marion, and Don really looking at their parents and the grandparents to see what's going on. And it kind of, there's this um, conversation with Mr. Spear and um, Don's grandfather that is kind of interesting. Yeah, it's super interesting, right? That he, Mr. You know, the grandfather sort of asks some questions that he thinks he already knows the answer to and then has to, like, re-examine his, you know, what he thinks he knows about Mr. Spear in light of this new information, right? He's like, Richard, how are things at Thompson, Thompson, and Abrams? And Marianne's like, Marianne's father's like, oh, I haven't been with them. I started my own firm. So this is like, uh, this taps into a, like, bootstraps you know, trip, mm-hmm. right? like I picked myself up from my poor social class and now I'm on my, on my own practice. I, I was but a mail carrier's son. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. It doesn't sound like that in Connecticut. <laughs> I'm from California. I don't know what people sound like anywhere. I don't yeah. know where anywhere is. Keep doing, keep doing that Connecticut <laughs> accent. I think when you do. Mr. Spears no, I won't. And then there's like a, na- a neighborhood thing that follows, right? Granny leans over and joins the conversation. Like Richard, are you over still living on Taylor street? And then he's like, oh, no, we live in Bradford Court. Um, and then everyone's like, oh, oh no. <laughs> and then um, the I, I like this part where Don narrates, like, the truth is mom and her parents rarely discuss touchy subjects, capital T, capital S. Mm-hmm. And their three touchiest subjects, capital T, capital S, at that time were the divorce, my father, and Marianne's father. Mm-hmm. I think it's just, like, so much interesting stuff happening in that dynamic around, like different expectations for different social classes and then like what signals sort of success in the eighties, like what, what moral rubric do we use to make sense of like how well people, how successful people are and like mm-hmm. how much do we attribute, you know, where th- things like where they live and what type of job they have to their kind of moral worth. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that, that it's like being dealt with critically in this context. I think that like we're supposed to feel glad that Don's parents are changing their mind about Mr. Spear, right. not sort of angry at them for having had those um, commitments or um, right. feeling that way about him in the first place. Well, I, yeah, 
Yeah, I think it, there's sort of a rooting for the underdog aspect, right? So, like, we want to believe in this, like, Horatio Alger to story. succeed in right. capitalism. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. By absolute standards. Right. Yeah. So, I do think there's some, like, slight shade thrown at Granny and Pop Pop for their snobbery. And I think <laughs> Dawn also has some nuanced, I thought of this throughout because she mentions. In the first chapter, she mentions that they have a ton of money. Um, yeah. and that they're like old money, Stony Brook. And then she talks about Watson as a rich person in a different way. Um, mm-hmm. So she talks about like him having a fancy living room, but Andrew and Karen are allowed to be in there because Watson trusts them. And she sort of lines up a bunch of things in the middle of the book about how Watson's like the right kind of rich person yeah. and Granny and Pop Pop are snobs. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like this is like, it is that... The, it's more that their attitude is bad, not that the system is bad, like you're right. saying. Right. That like, they're capitalism's like, fine, but you shouldn't be a snob about it. Right. Um, yeah. But I do think it's kind of interesting that like the mailman versus the banker dichotomy, which we see in Marianne Saves the Day. But I was like, dude, is that really the best like example to illustrate like what that class class inequality would have looked like mm-hmm. in the 80s and like what would that be now? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Like, because you, I mean, in the eighties, I guess at this point, we've already decided that Reagan's been president for six years. So you probably mm-hmm. already have a kind of emptying of the public service sector. So like, mm-hmm. I don't, I didn't look up like what the wages would have been for a male, male person in the early eighties compared to, or like in the 60s whatever whenever Mr. Spears dad would mm-hmm. have been doing that job to like what it would have been in the 80s as a and what whether that mm-hmm. that gap would have grown at the same rate that other forms of income inequality mm-hmm. did in Connecticut over the course of the 80s um yeah but I don't know I was curious what you guys made of that that dichotomy the mailman versus the banker <laughs> I feel like as a child of the 80s, banker is definitely the, you know, like Wall Street was big, like banker was the rich person job. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's the right one. I don't know what you think, Anne. Yeah. I mean, honestly, isn't it kind of still the same now? It's like, are you a banker or are you a mailman? <laughs> you know, I feel like banker is still like the stereotypical go-to occupation if you're, if you're wealthy, right? Like, yeah, some kind Wall of moving money around in some way. Yeah. yeah. Like banker is a general term, but some like somebody who's in yeah. finance or hedge funds or something. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's interesting. Mail carrier, well, it's a unionized job. It's a government mm-hmm. job. It's and it's all but it's also blue collar, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a you don't have to have a college education. It's not a you you you're active. You have to be out and doing something with your body. You have to carry things around. Mm-hmm. Um so I don't know if there are other signifiers other than just class, you know, in terms of like a, an essential service and someone that's a part of the community instead of yeah. somebody that's like observing the community from afar. Yeah. I mean, I do and feel like a, a mailman has a, like you have this connotation of someone who's like hardworking, who is uh-huh. like, it's like a good job. Neither rain nor sleet nor, you know, dark at night or whatever. It's someone, it's like a job you can do forever. You know, it's like one of those jobs that feels like, like you're, you're a life, you're a lifer if you're a mailman kind of type of thing. Yeah. I mean, I guess I was thinking as we dropped the term like essential, right. Which in Corona times means like pop pop would be banking from home and (laughs) Mr. Spears dad would be like on the front lines wearing a mask every day and working for an institution that's funding is essentially Mm -hmm. that's like essentially being divested from rather Mm -hmm. than like propped Mm -hmm. up. And so like that, that divide would be even that class divide way wider than it would have been, you know, when pop pop and Mr. Spears father were, in their prime working, working years, you know, quotes about scared quotes Mm -hmm. about. So yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. I just think that maybe the, like the middle class signal of mailman no longer holds water, right. That, that, that like, and it demonstrates how drastically kind of income inequality has widened. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. I think, I think we, we knew a lot of people 
in our elementary school class, me and Anne, whose parents were mail carriers or similar occupations, right? Like mm-hmm. civil, civil service workers, civil servant, yeah, like worked in city hall downtown as a as a you know receptionist or things like that. And I don't like I don't know anybody that has those kinds of jobs in my kids' classes or very f- much fewer. So yeah, yeah. definitely. One of my other favorite bits of this picnic is when Don makes this observation about how adults are hard to understand when they're trying to like read the room. Mm-hmm. And she says, uh, sometimes they seem to have several faces. It's as if they own masks and you know, <laughs> they own masks, but you can't always tell their masks from their real expressions. Why do they make everything so complicated? Yeah. I love that part. Like jumping, jumping yeah. in as a psychologist. I love that part. I think it's exactly right. And that's what teens and, um, you know, older kids are figuring out is like, how do you present yourself in different social situations and what does it mean? And how do you express emotions effectively? And this is right in the same, I think it's only a paragraph away from the avoiding quote unquote touchy subjects thing. So there's mm-hmm. that, that white Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture that would have been mm-hmm. very, very present in right. white Connecticut in the mid eighties. And so you see that and you see that, you know, we saw that in the last book too, with how little Marianne and Mr. Spear talk about kind of real topics. Um, and that the porters, um, Sharon Schaefer's parents come from the same, cut from the same cloth. Yeah. And let's talk about how we know at this picnic, all the adults are drunk. <laughs> like, <laughs> You know, Pop Pop is drinking like a gin and tonic. Like, oh, yeah, the mom's had so much Chardonnay. <laughs> <laughs> Especially Mrs. Barrett, I feel like. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, man. Okay. I have one other sort of political thing that you didn't mention, Emily, that stuck out to me and that I remembered very deeply um, as uh, from reading this as a kid and that I did for years as a babysitter myself um, is that Dawn is like an, a like gun control advocate in this yeah, book. On, that was on my list too. Okay. I was curious about whether that's supposed to like, whether that's part of signaling her Californianness to us mm-hmm. or like what yeah. that was all about. Can we, yeah. can, do you guys know what page that is on? Cause we should read it. Yeah. Um, it was, it was much more than I remembered. I thought it was one line. It's in chapter five. Hold on. I thought it was one line, but it actually comes back around several times in the chapter. Um, so it's the first time she sits for the Barretts and she kind of comes in, she comes in strong. Like she sort of surveys the scene quickly and is like, oh, these children are wild animals. I need to like assert myself was my take on it. Um, and so she ever so casually, I leaned over and took the gun from him. Hello, I said. I'm Don Schaefer. I met you at the Pikes, and I'm your babysitter. I don't like guns. So no guns when I'm around. That goes for you guys, too, I told Susie and Marnie. Um, and then they don't say anything else about it then, but it comes back around mm-hmm. on a later page in the same well, chapter. S- s- sort of throws shade at Marianne for not enforcing the gun rule. <laughs> oh, she does? Because yeah, there's a, a chapter where Marianne sits for them and in the podcast or in the podcast notebook, LOL, <laughs> in the club notebook, she says like, I don't know how you babysit for them. Those kids are wild. And as Dawn is like retelling, you mm-hmm. know, telling the per- chapter from the perspective of Marianne, she's, she makes some comment like, well, Marianne didn't lay down the rules about guns like I did. Yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. somehow an explanation for why she failed to control them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then it comes back up on, in the same chapter, page 49. The Barrett kids and I flopped on the couch in the playroom. Pow wandered in. That's their dog, their basset hound. Buddy aimed a finger at him. Blam, blam, he shrieked. I covered Buddy's hand with my own. Hey, remember what I said about guns? I warned him. Not while I'm around. So who says you're the boss, Buddy added, asked defiantly. He leaped up and stood in front of me, legs spread, cowboy hat askew. Very slowly, he raised his gun finger and aimed it at me. Buddy, I said calmly, while I'm babysitting, I am the boss. I'm in charge. And I say no guns. Why? Because real guns are very dangerous. They are not toys. And I don't think we should ever pretend they are toys. There are plenty of other things we can pretend instead. 
And then she gets them off track with another pretend game. But I didn't remember like such a strong stance about like the danger of gun violence um, in these books. But it's definitely like if you talk about sort of um, Anna Martin's re-education plan for the youth of America, like that stuck with me. Like my family didn't talk about guns or anything, but that like Mm -hmm. idea like stuck with me and stayed with me into adulthood. And I'm sure this is where it came from. I think we're just foreshadowing more of Don's kind of representation of liberalism um, going forward. Good liberal politics. Yes. Capital D, capital L. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, she's a good kind of rich kid. Yeah. 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 Uh, exactly. Well, she knows which are the which are the good rich kids oh, and which God. are the bad rich kids. Okay. So, can I talk about psychology stuff now? If you must. <laughs> it's like literally why you have me on this podcast. So two things stuck out to me in this book. One is I think, um, again, I continue to think Anna Martin has just such a fantastic pulse on the emotional life of children and like really did her research. And I know she talked to several psychologists and stuff throughout the course of the series. Um, I, I love her treatment of divorce in this book and I love how she represents kind of the diversity of divorce experience that kids have. So we have three very different treatments of divorce. We have Dawn's experience of, um, her parents just not sort of getting along anymore and having different goals in life. And we have Christy's parents, parents, her dad basically abandoning the family. And then we have this like hotly contested divorce that the Barrett's, the family of the eponymous impossible three are, are going through. And so, and, and then she also examines it from different developmental stages, kind of how they understand it. She has this lovely conversation about divorce with the Barrett's where, um, she says, yeah, you know, I wish my parents would get back together too, but it's forever. And she's just very matter of fact about it. And Buddy and Susie react to it differently based on their developmental ages. Um, and then I also think it's very common, especially um, when the oldest is a girl um, for kids. You know, there's a reason I use the term parentified in my intro, but for kids to kind of take on additional roles um, during, during a divorce. And we definitely see, you know, Emily's talking about all of the emotional labor that Dawn was doing, but we definitely see that from her and how she's sort of unpacking the house and taking care of Jeff and taking care of everything. And I think that that's a common experience, particularly of older girls, not that boys never do it, but it would have been even more common for girls in the eighties. So I just thought she had a really nice treatment of it. I, my parents, have have both been divorced, um, but are not divorced from each other. Um, and so I, you know, I was curious and, and Anne's parents are also not divorced. I was curious kind of Emily, how, how you, you know, my, my perspective is coming kind of academically and from working with a lot of kids and divorced families, but how, how did you find it as, as a kid whose parents are divorced? Yeah. I mean, I think looking back on it, this is probably one of the reasons why I also really strongly identified with Don because <laughs> my parents had that kind of divorce. Like they, talked to us about the divorce and they had, we had, they gave us a a reason for it. That was like, we want different things. We don't live together well, but like, we're still going to be a family. Um, and like, we still care about each other. We just, we're not going to be married anymore, basically. Um, Mm -hmm. and so I think, you know, and whether Dawn got that narrative that like, her dad is really organized and her mom's really messy. And that's some uh, like central metaphor for understanding like what didn't mesh about them from them or whether that's her own observation. I think Mm -hmm. whether they told her that or not, they must have acted in a way where she was able to read that from a situation that wasn't hotly contested, like the Barrett's divorce, you know? And I think that like a lot of the emotional labor that she ends up doing for her mom is probably, she probably would have done it anyway, if her parents had stayed together, right. That's like a dynamic about their difference in personalities. But I really, Mm -hmm. um, I think that like how that plays out in her babysitting world and babysitting life is kind of interesting, right. Mm -hmm. That she ends up like taking on this kind of, I don't know, this like supplemental role to Mrs. Barrett as a parent for these kids, which is like, comes from a a particular dynamic of maturity that she gets from her experience of her own parents' divorce, right? Like there's a way in which she's kind of already emotionally mature. And Mm -hmm. then I think the divorce and how she thinks about it and talks about it and how she experienced, or at least how she's narrating her experience of it, like helps contextualize 
certain dynamics of her emotional maturity, if that makes yeah. sense. And like yeah. in a way that I really identified with, like I, my mom is not, you know, a space cadet. She describes her as like a, a professor type, absent-minded professor type, mm-hmm. but like my dad is a little bit mm-hmm. kind of, and, and I've nannied for families or cared for children where I've done mm-hmm. a lot of emotional labor for both the parents and the children. And I do it a lot for friends. So I think mm-hmm. it's like, you know, I don't know if it, I think that's one of the contexts in which like nurture breeds mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of personality predispositions, right? That that experience is a really formative way that absolutely formative way to like help you sort of see two sides of a story mm-hmm. and to be able to like find common ground between people who are having a conflict, which Dawn works out herself in her own relationship with Christy in a, like a really sweet way. That's one of the chapters where I cried. Yeah. When she, um, when she and Christy are hanging out in the barn or when she realizes that Christy's jealous both yeah <laughs> and then because when she realizes christy's jealous she's like oh i have nothing to be mad at this is a situation born out of like intense emotional connection and like i mm-hmm. in fact i can do something to, ch- to change yeah. it yeah and i loved that about her too i love that her response to this is to like she cracks the code pretty early on um when they're at lunch in the cafeteria and and one of the Shillaber twins is like, oh my gosh, if your parents get married, you'll be stepsisters. And Marianne and Don are both like, wow, we hadn't thought of that. And Christy mumbles to herself, well, I thought of it. And yeah. then Don's like, aha. And then her response is, is to get closer. Her response is to like work on developing an independent relationship with Christy and make Christy like her, which yeah. is just so lovely. And I think you're exactly right, is brought out of that like... Um, you know, in a different family, it might be sort of a middle child tendency, right? To kind mm-hmm. of build bridges. Um, uh, I think that's how it is in, in my siblings. Your aunt Millicent, I think, is really good at seeing. Um, <laughs> uh, my sister is really good at seeing multiple sides of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and in in this also childhood force, um, but in this case, is, it comes from kind of understanding both of her parents and not being mad at either of them. Whereas Christy has this sort of simpler way of looking at things. Of like, my dad was a dick, and he left us. Mm-hmm. Um, so she doesn't have to like look for as much nuance. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, the other thing that really stood out to me, so there's this whole subplot when, uh, toward the end um, where Buddy Barrett goes missing when um, Don is babysitting for him. So he was playing out front while Don got Marnie and Susie ready to go outside and then they come out and he's gone. And Eventually, the police get called and the neighborhood gets mobilized to search for him. Um, And this, to me, is a very mid to late 80s storyline. So we had a few different moral panics around children in the 80s. And one of them was this kind of idea of stranger abduction. And there are a few kind of very high profile cases of kids getting taken and kidnapped and killed by strangers. And that led to a lot of parents getting scared and a lot of what eventually evolved into helicopter parenting and things that affected your generation more than mine and Anne's generation, Emily, of kids keeping uh, parents, keeping kids in lots of activities and very closely monitored for fear of abductions. When in fact, abductions were not happening at very high rates, um, but were just such low incidents, but very terrifying um, examples that parents were willing and I think to a certain extent continue to be willing to sacrifice some some gains that can be had from a little bit having some more risks in childhood um, for this very unlikely, to prevent this very unlikely event from occurring. And so before this book, Anne and Martin had actually written a different novel, Missing Sense Monday, that came out in 1986 that I know both Anne and I read in childhood. Did you read Missing Sense Monday, Emily? Mm -hmm. It's about this teenager, Maggie, and her half-sister, Courtney, but was spelled Courtenay, which always bothered me. Um, (laughs) um, And she's watching her for a week. She's four, and then she she gets abducted. Um, And it's about, like, the search for her and how that happens. And, um, And so... This chapter is like another mini version of that. Um, Spoilers ahead. In both cases, they were not stranger abductions, which I actually think is um, a really responsible thing of Anna Martin and that most of most cases of kids getting kidnapped are of a of a parent or some other known figure um, attempting to to take them and she has a police officer say this in the in the book um, really buddy's dad was not trying to kidnap him but 
picks him up because it was his weekend to see the kids and he wanted to get back at Mrs. Barrett, but didn't know that there was a babysitter home. Um, so Buddy turns up a couple hours later, everything's fine. Um, but it was partly that Don didn't understand the dynamics with the Barretts and that Mrs. Barrett hadn't explained them well um, so that she didn't know that this might be a possibility. But it is just very interesting to me how this is like not a story you see in a lot of kids' books now, but was like very big in the 80s. So I feel like this is very um, kind of pinned in that time and how Mrs. Pike immediately is like, Jordan, you saw him get into a car. Like it, it, it raises the alarm so quickly and nobody, you know, people aren't like, oh, well, who might have picked him up? And it was rainy and maybe someone thought he needed a ride. Like it's like immediately goes to abduction. Um, yeah. Can I, one quick thing. I was just wondering if you think at the beginning when Don almost makes a comment about not wanting to become a latchkey kid to Christy, whether that's like foreshadowing the <laughs> yeah, other linked think, tropes, right? That like oh, totally the linked tropes. latchkey kids is that there's no oversight and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. 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 No, I, I think it absolutely could have been. Yeah. I was going to say like with the whole eighties and the missing children and stuff, like that was when, putting the missing children on the milk cartons was like yes. a really huge thing, which I don't know if Emily, do you have any memory of that at all? Probably I not. have seen the movie face on a milk carton. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Emily, this was a real thing when yeah. our parents would go to the grocery store, they would come home with milk cartons with pictures of actual missing children on the side mostly missing white children with a list yeah. about a suspect who was usually a black or brown man. Um, and it was like, you would pour your cereal in the morning and look at like little, yeah. you know, Susie Barrett looking back at you and what, when, what date she'd been missing and in what place. And that, that is a totally interesting piece of this. That was just, again, part of the culture we were swimming in mm -hmm. and part of the thing that kids were thinking about and worrying about. So I remember reading this as a kid and being like, Oh God, buddy got abducted. Like that was a worry that was inculcated in all of us to like be afraid of strangers. And, you know, I did a brief lit search on this in the psychology literature, and there was a lot on, um, you know, programs to help kids be protected from abduction. So like, how do you teach a first grader to, you know, be wary of strangers and not get abducted, but also how do you measure if that works? Uh -huh. Like yeah. you can't really, like, it's such a low incidence thing. Like if there is a kid who, you know, has an attempted abduction and doesn't get abducted, is that because of the class you did? Like it's, and then there's also no evidence at all. I looked up the milk carton thing and there's no evidence that that helped. They didn't keep any numbers. We have no idea if ever a single kid yeah. was found because of the milk carton ads. So those were phased out a little bit after Emily was born. Yeah. yeah. Those milk carton things were so normal. But like looking back, it's so weird. Like yeah. on a milk carton, it's very strange. Yeah. So what else stuck out to you, Anne? Well, there were a few things. Um, one was the description of Watson's house in several instances of like, I mean, they, they like alluded in the past books that he lived in a big house on like the other side of town, which is like the wealthy side of town. But in this book, they really dive into what his place really looks like. And I think mm -hmm. they call it a mansion for the first time, I think. Like they didn't yeah, describe it several times. times. <laughs> yeah, like a lot of times they call it a mansion. And when they get into describing it, it's like you're like picturing like gone with the wind or something like some crazy house was like they even said like floor to ceiling windows with like those drapes and stuff and like mm -hmm. you know, Emily said earlier like the three couches and, and one room um and Christy has an outburst of anger about mm -hmm. we find out that Chrissy is very upset about moving and she really she's scared about moving and like what it means for the babysitters club so that's on page 103 um and I'll read it it's she says no but I'm the only one whose mother chose to get married to a jerk who's so rich he lives three and a half miles away on millionaire's land which is what they should call that gross street he can afford to live on and I'm the only one who may have to drop out of the club the club I started so she calls it a gross street it's mm -hmm. interesting that like Chrissy's never at all 
like talked about or like had a lot of uh, self-awareness or in other books about how rich Watson was. She never really mm-hmm. talked about it. And in, so in this book, it's like we find out that, you know, maybe she she doesn't want to move to the other side of town. And like, does she think, does she see herself as someone who is middle class, who mm-hmm. is now moving to a different class and she feels yeah. uncomfortable about that? Uh-huh. I'm so excited. We still have a little ways, but this is going to get explored a lot more deeply in Christy and the yes. Sob. Um, so it'll be fun. But we get we get to peek at it a little bit next week, yeah. too. Christy's big day. I was just going to say, I think that it's interesting that, like, in the earlier chapter or earlier books, she's, like, trying to talk herself into the house. And then in mm-hmm. this, like, moment of rage that's compounded mm-hmm. by, you know, or her worry over her losing her friendships potentially and the the sort of camaraderie of the club, this like explosion of kind of resentment against that wealth that like that wealth is the thing that demands they move, not like Watson himself. And so there's a kind of like tension between the way she tries to talk herself into that, that level of luxury. And then this moment of like, you know, explosion of, of anger and resentment at, um, at like the demands that come with that social class, which include ge- geographical demands. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And his house has nine bedrooms, which is <laughs> I know. Too, too many bedrooms. Like that's insane. None of us 25 children. I know. Yeah, now you're going to have like a crazy blended family with the Thomas Brewers. I feel like it's yeah. probably just the right amount of bedrooms. <laughs> In the very beginning of the book, uh, Dawn says something that I found really interesting about Claudia. She says, uh, well, she's like kind of describing everyone in the club and she gets to the Claudia paragraph and she says, Claudia is Japanese and beautiful. Um, she hates school, but loves art and mystery stories. And then she says, she's a little bit hard to get to know. I marked that down too. I thought that was super interesting. Yeah. I thought there's like a lot to unpack there. Like a lot about Claudia, like how, what is that? It, it makes her seem, uh, I guess she's like walled off a little bit. I feel like I can be hard to get to know also, but like I was also raised in a Japanese household and we, you're just raised with having, being less, you know, you don't, you're, you're taught not to wear your emotions mm-hmm. on your sleeve. Like you keep everything on the inside. You don't, you don't show people how you're really feeling. So, because, you know, I was always taught, like, oh, like, never, you never want to, like, really bother people with how you feel, which actually um, maybe isn't true in Claudia, because she was the one who started the fight in book four. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I was wondering if it was a thinly veiled racial comment, right. like, if it, like, on, or not that thinly veiled. So you could read it as, like, a cultural comment, like you're saying, like, mm-hmm. she's, she's not putting everything out there, but I sort of read it as, you know, one possibility is it's just Claudia's personality. Mm-hmm. Another possibility is it's, she's raised to be a little closer to the vest. Another possibility is that Dawn's, the, the default is whiteness and expressing yourself in the mm-hmm. way Dawn and other members of the club express themselves. And since Claudia is not performing whiteness adequately, then she's hard to get to know because right. she has mm-hmm. an additional barrier for Dawn. And I, I, I that, that one short little line I felt like was really hard to unpack for all of those reasons. And it could be any of those right. things. Or all of them. Yeah, or all of them. <laughs> Which is but part of the structural problem of race, racism. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. Uh, the other thing I was wondering is like Dawn's, Dawn's mom's storyline. It, like... Just because I watched the Gilmore Girls, I just thought of the Gilmore Girls and how, like, Lorelai's parents... Do you guys watch Gilmore Girls? Mm-hmm. Like, Lorelai's parents are very wealthy, and she's kind of, like, the free spirit, mm. kind of, like, outcast of the family. So, it just makes me think, like, Dawn's mom is, you know, she's described as being, you know, kind of, like, this absent-minded professor-type person. And she grew up in a very wealthy family on the East coast somehow made her way to California to presumably live some sort of like small town beach life and like, you know, Uh got married to someone and had Dawn and, you know, her marriage ended in divorce and she like moves back home. 
but it makes me, it, I feel like it, it paints Don's mom as like this, you know, like kind of a like hippie type of person mm-hmm. and her parents raised this kind of more of a rebellious daughter who then instead of dating someone in her class dated a male dated down. <laughs> yeah dated down and like what's that and like was dating down like a sign of rebellion for her because she came from a wealthy family I don't know I just thought about that as I was reading it yeah that's funny because all my favorite lines from this book are Mrs. Schaefer lines <laughs> <laughs> I have a couple too. Would it be possible, Emily, there's one other thing I wanted to say about the abduction stuff that I just saw in my notes that I forgot to say. So one more thing that I thought she did really well um, is that she got the way the cops were questioning Jordan very accurately to how children were questioned in the 1980s, both around um, the satanic panic about childhood sexual abuse um, and with abductions. Basically, we didn't know anything about how to talk to children about facts. Um, And this was before a lot of the research showing the way that memory is kind of bent over time. And so they show the police asking Jordan over and over again. So Jordan Pike is the one that saw Buddy get into the car with his dad um, and asking him over and over again, what's the color of the car? Are you sure you couldn't see if it was a man or woman until Jordan's like crying. Um, And unfortunately, this happened very frequently and children just want to answer. They want to give the right answer. They're socialized to want to say the thing that adults want them to say. So Jordan, in this case, stuck by the fact that he didn't have facts he didn't have. But a lot of kids were sort of forced into saying things that they weren't sure of because it was the right answer that like an investigator or a social worker or somebody else was giving them. Um, So I thought that she did a really nice job portraying that and portraying kind of Mr. and Mrs. Pike stepping in to try to get him out of that situation. Yeah, that whole scene seemed, the whole scene seemed very like well done. Yeah. And like realistic to me. Sure. And I liked how Don's mom came at the end. Oh, yeah, that was really nice. I yeah. cried at that part too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Tell me, you guys are both crying a lot in this book and I usually cry in many of these books and I didn't cry that much in this one. Um, that, that was the part where I was like, oh, I, I maybe would tear up here, but I didn't really. So like, where were all the places that you guys cried? Okay. Um, I only like teared up once, I think. And I think it's when, um, I think it's when Buddy was really sad about Don explaining divorce to him and he kind of like, ran up the mm-hmm. stairs and then he needed a hug after I thought that was mm-hmm. kind of teared up there. Yeah. I cried, um, at the Christy and Dawn reconciliation scene. I cried when she cries, when her mom shows up and I cried, mm-hmm. I think I cried at the end when they figured out like a way to continue doing the club. Mm. You're deeply invested. <laughs> oh, oh, because Jeff comes over to take a picture of the club for Marianne's room. That's yeah. why that made yeah, me cry. That was very sweet. Um, and then when the babysitters are talking about the pro- the prospect of being adopted, abducted by a parent, that's just sort of like a deep moment that leads into that sweet moment. So that combination of that like trajectory got me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you cried in the whole book, basically. You're like crying now. You know what? <laughs> I'm not not crying now. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Anna, Martin, you beautiful, talented witch, you. I can't. <laughs> so we'll good. Speaking of which, we'll get to that later. Yeah. <laughs> nice tease. Nice tease, Emily. Oh, actually, speaking of which is also, can we just talk about what my copy of this book looks like? I don't know if you guys can see that there's like oh, wow. literal, like Emily That's just like, to it. ate it. Like it's in chunks. I'm amazingly, all of the pieces are still here, but like between 66 and 105, they're just like individual pages, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Are there tear stains on it? <laughs> yeah. Pro- yes. <laughs> I was just going to say it's water damage from my salty tear ducts. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that Donna and the Impossible Three helped you process your, your parents' divorce. I think that's good that it was there. <laughs> All right, Anne, what kind of junk food we got? Um, we got um, more Hostess products. We got Ho-Ho's and Ding Dong's. Uh, saltwater taffy, which I feel like is a favorite of Claudia's and more eminence, but not a lot because this is a Dawn book and she focuses more on tofu. <laughs> and wheat, berm and yogurt. <laughs> yeah. 
She sure does. So uh, Dawn is also much less judgmental than Marianne. So our, our uh, trope count is, is lower. She refers to Marianne as babyish one time, Christy as bossy one time with a qualifier. Um, Claudia is sophisticated, but not Stacy. And Marianne is shy. So that's where we are. So what about our favorite lines from the book? Um, I'll go first. There's two. Uh, one is when uh, Buddy says bonsai as he jumps into a puddle. But it's spelled like B-O-N-S-A-I, which is like the the art of the trees, of like miniature trees. But she met bonsai, B-A-N-Z-A-I, which is like what <laughs> like pilots, Japanese pilots would like yell as they like crashed their planes into and like committed suicide in the name of their emperor. <laughs> so it's just a sad mix up that makes no sense. And also why would a child be saying that anyway, as he jumps into a puddle? Um, and then the that other made one it to was, my social justice watch list for sure. Okay, good. Innocent mistake. It's fine. Um, <laughs> just insulting my entire culture, but whatever. <laughs> uh, but there's also a part where they talk about oh, at, when they're deciding what to get for the picnic, Dawn and her mom, and they're discussing. Oh, yeah, they, and she says, in Connecticut, people barbecue things. <laughs> like, yeah. people in Connecticut are like heathens who just like kill animals and like throw their carcass on a grill and just eat it. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I have two favorite lines from that scene as well. One is when uh, Don's mom exclaims, red meat? hot dogs <laughs> and I also loved when she said do you really think we can buy ready-made potato salad <laughs> yeah. yeah it's like yes you can buy that <laughs> but I wonder was that like a relatively new thing in the mid-80s like maybe it was not a thing oh, like ready-made food yeah Siri I mean did potato salad ready-made <laughs> appear in grocery stores <laughs> Uh, my other favorite line is when Don's mom at the be- sort of near the beginning, um, she's like misplaced an earring or something. And then she's like, does it look weird by itself? And Don says, well, it looks sort of punk. And then she goes, punk? Mom <laughs> spit the word out as if it tasted bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I loved that. Yeah, that was pretty great. I have two different, I have two different favorite lines. Um, one is a note that Mrs. Schaefer leaves for Don and Jeff, which is do not under any circumstances touch the tofu ginger salad. <laughs> And I, uh, my daughter is often trying to figure out what bizarre tofu concoctions the Schaefer's are eating because it's all like very not specific. Like, so tofu ginger salad, is it just tofu and ginger? Is it like a salad, like chicken salad? Is it's very confusing. Is it like, Um, is there mayo in there? Right. Who knows what that is? Um, and then my other favorite one was why can't food companies spell things properly, which I think is another Uh, little, um, another little Anna Martin, like dig at the deterioration of grammar and spelling in society. This is when Don's making easy bake brownies with two E's Mm -hmm. for the parrots. I feel like bonsai has to be the winner. <laughs> Did either of you guys pick up on that? Did either of you like were like that's spelled yeah. wrong? Okay. Yeah. But maybe he did. It was on my list. Whole, maybe he did just smell a little tree, and he was like, "The art of really the trees." <laughs> yeah. Maybe he's a bonsai enthusiast. Who knows? And I'm wrong. <laughs> I'm just picturing Buddy Barrett's room and it's like a stereotypical eight-year-old boy's room in the 1980s. And there's like, yeah, there's like a New England Patriots, like, you know, flag. And there's like a baseball, (laughs) yeah, Chuck Norris, you know, like a baseball bat and mitt. And then like seven little different types of bonsai, like lined up along a credenza. Amazing. Yeah, it has like a little water spray. (laughs) He like sprays them every day and like trims them with some little scissors. (laughs) Oh my God, it's Matt and as a child in the 80s. <laughs> All right. So bonsai it is. <laughs> All right. What should we pizza toast to? I mean, 
serious would be like to the in- ignored indigenous tribes of Western Connecticut in the 1790s. Um, and we, could, we could also pizza toast to Richard Spear finally getting some. <laughs> Richard Spear he, got <laughs> he did get contacts, right? Because yeah. he fell out of her lawn chair. Um, <laughs> important plot point. Uh, we could also pizza toast to toast to like. While I do appreciate all the emotional labor Dawn has done as a twelve-year-old for the Barrett family, she's awfully sanctimonious in Chapter Fifteen, telling Mrs. Barrett how to live her life. So we could um, we could pizza was, toast to Dawn's self righteousness. Let's do it. Kind of fell on Dawn. All right, pizza toast to Dawn's self righteousness. To Dawn's self righteousness. All right. This episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank you to Anna Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kid. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both a local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash stuck in Stony Brook. Lastly, if you're feeling dibly generous and you want to rate and review us on iTunes, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl could ask for. 